Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhere to Apologetics, wherever you may be, however you may be. Join us, thank you for making us a part of your day. As always, we're brought to you by you with your support at patreon.com slash adhere apologetics. Uh, today I'm here with Dr. Daniel Driesbach, a really smart guy. He's a professor at American University. Um, he's a professor of justice, law, and criminology. Lots of fun stuff. He wrote a book called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. It came out a few years ago with, I believe, Oxford University Press. Really insightful book, doing a lot of very important things kind of getting to the the Christian heritage or maybe lack thereof, you'll find out now, of America and the Founding Fathers. So, Dr. Driesbach, uh, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me, and I enjoy um, looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, for sure. I'm really excited for this because, especially in recent years, I've noticed that it's becoming more of a debate. Is America a Christian nation? Are we founded on Christian principles? Are we founded on the Enlightenment? Are we founded on sort of like neoclassical ancient principles, all stuff like that? Um, so really looking forward to your insight. Um, but before we get into some of the specific questions, can you just talk a little bit about like if someone doesn't know who you are, like who you are and what you do? Well, yes, I'm happy to. And let me just elaborate on your very kind introduction. I am a professor at American University in Washington, D.C. Um, my principal area of research interest is, uh, is the intersection of religion, law, and politics in American public life. And most of what I've written uh, over the course of my career has focused on this intersection uh, at the end of the 18th century, that time in the life of the nation that we sometimes call the American founding uh, era. And uh, so most of my my books and articles have been on that topic. You mentioned my uh, recent book called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. Uh, another book uh, that, that touches very much on this subject is a book some years ago called Thomas Jefferson and the Wall of Separation Between Church and State. Uh, as you no doubt know, it's hard to have a conversation about church-state relations without encountering this, this metaphor of a wall of separation. So this is a book that is a, is a biography, if you will, of a metaphor. Where did this metaphor come from? Um, how did it enter into our political and legal lexicon? What does it mean? What did Jefferson mean by it? And so I explore those kinds of questions. So these are the kinds of topics uh, that I've been uh, writing about uh, over the years. Mm. Yeah, and I'd recommend for anyone to check out um, Dr. Driesbach's work. I'm reading through Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers right now as part of a class I'm taking. And my professors talked about she really looks up to you as a scholar, scholar. You're very, from what I've told you, a very good scholarship. You look at the evidence. Um, lots of really good work coming from what you're doing. So I think that just to start off, let's just talk about this question. Were America's founding fathers Christians? Because I think that we assume we've assumed so for so long, especially um, Christians have. But then you have people like maybe like a Jefferson or a Franklin, where people are like these people weren't actually Christians. So to start off, are America's founding fathers are they Christians? Yeah, I think that's a good question, uh, and maybe it's the kind of question that we should start with a few definitions. Mm -hmm. uh, what What do we mean by uh, the founding or the founding fathers? So when I use that term, I am uh, generally referring, when I speak of the founding era, I'm referring to the last third or so of the 18th century. This is a time when Americans began to agitate for their rights as, as freeborn Englishmen, and when they believe that uh, the, the Crown and Parliament are not respecting or observing their rights, 
as colonists. They then begin to agitate for independence. They fight for independence. And then having secured independence, they then face this enormous task of rebuilding a political society. And, and this involves writing articles of confederation and a constitution. Uh, so when I speak of the founding period, I, I'm, I'm speaking of this time in the life of, of our nation. Now, when I uh, use uh, the term founding fathers, I tend to use that term rather broadly. We could, we could talk about five or six famous founders that most Americans can ad- identify, um, you know, a Washington and a Jefferson and whatnot. Uh, I, I use the term much more broadly. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a really a, a broad company of people who were very much involved in articulating the rights of colonists and fighting for independence and, and then rebuilding that, that political society that we just mentioned. And that includes, you know, simple farmers, militiamen. It includes polemicists, pamphleteers who are trying to galvanize the American public. I'm speaking of people who participated in, in conventions and constitution writing and all kinds of events. And so when I speak of the founding fathers, yes, I am referring to that famous group of people that we can all name, but I also have in mind a much larger company of individuals. Uh, And of course, we have to answer this question, what do we mean by Christian? Uh, Clearly, the vast majority of Americans in 1776 culturally identified as Christian. Uh, probably more than 99% of the colonists of European descent would have identified as Christian, and more than 98% would have identified as Protestant Christian. Um, but of course, being a, identified culturally as a Christian is somewhat different than than being sort of a a, a Christian in a, a, a by way of a genuine theological uh, commitment. Now. I can't read the hearts of of, of men and women. Uh, so it, it, in the words of of Matthew chapter seven, all I can do is I can I can look at their fruits. By their fruits you shall know them. And so when you begin to look at uh, their words and and um, what they did, you're going to have a mixed bag. Uh, I I think that the American founders. Uh, represented a broad range of theological and religious perspectives. Uh, Clearly, some, in fact, many were devout Christians, give evidence of that uh, uh, personal faith, um, including some very famous ones, people like a Patrick Henry or a John Jay, um, an Oliver Ellsworth, uh, a John Witherspoon. The list is very long of those uh, founders who give evidence of a deep spiritual commitment. But there are also others that I think you alluded to earlier that that uh, uh, say things that clearly put them outside Orthodox Christianity if we are to define Orthodox Christianity by, let's say, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, using the Apostles' Creed as, as sort of our benchmark. Uh, take someone like a Thomas Jefferson who, who questions the divinity of Jesus or the virgin birth or, or some of the miraculous claims uh, attributed uh, to the works of Jesus. Um, so by those standards, I, I think Jefferson is not an Orthodox Christian. Interestingly, he calls himself a Christian, but he says he is of a sect 
of himself. In other words, he's the only person who believes the set of values, the beliefs that he believes. He called himself a Christian, but I, I, I'm not sure that he would. we can call him a Christian um, if we were to judge his faith by the standards of, let's say, the Nicene or the Apostles' uh, Creed. Uh, I think an interesting question worth going along, the one you just asked, is were the Founding Fathers deists? Uh, if you read much literature on the American founding, you're going to hear a very common refrain, and that is, the founders were deists. They weren't Orthodox Christians, they were deists. Well, I, I think that's worth exploring as well. And again, we have to deal with a few um, uh, definitions. Well, what do we mean by a deist? Well, the truth is that deism is a belief system that can cover a range of, of values, a range of belief systems. Um, many of us, when we were in high school or college, we learned deism um, by use of the clockmaker god idea, that deists believe that there's a clockmaker god who created the universe, wound it up, and then let it run on its own, not to intervene anymore in the material world. Well, if that's our definition of deism, and again, there are other definitions out there, but if that's our definition, then very few of the founders were deists. Um, that is not to say that they were necessarily Orthodox Christian, but they weren't deists in the sense that they that they uh, believed that God, having created the world, stepped away and, and refused to intervene in the material world. Uh, so there are very few deists by that particular definition. So again, I think we're left with this, this perspective. Yes, there were many, many Orthodox Christians, but there were also many uh, 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 other founders representing other uh, religious perspectives, um, value systems uh, that that I don't think that we would necessarily call orthodox. Mm. Yeah, so you talk about the Bible and Christianity impacting a lot of these founding fathers, a John Jay, a Patrick Henry. Uh, so I'd be curious if you could go into a little bit, like how did the Bible impact the founding fathers? So let's break this down a little bit. How did it impact them personally? How did it impact the culture? Uh, I think those are some different uh, sets of questions. Uh, personally, um, you know, the Bible was clearly the most accessible, the most familiar and most authoritative book in late 18th century America. If a family owned one book, that book was almost certainly the Bible. Uh, the Bible, uh, for example, would have been used to teach people how to read. Um, I, I think we can say many in the founding generation learned to read with a copy of the English Bible. In particular, the King James translation of the Bible opened in front of them. And I say that because that would have been the English language translation most accessible to Americans at the end of the 18th century. Uh, beyond that, uh, we're, we're talking about a culture that was um, in which the Bible would have influenced many, if not most, aspects of public culture. Uh, so it, the, the Bible would have informed aspects of their government, their laws. Uh, it would have been a, a central part of education uh, for those uh, founders who went to school. 
uh, we would discover that the Bible was woven into the curriculum, uh, the readings, and that would be true of, of many subjects, not just courses on theology and religion, but it would have been part of their history courses, a part of their science courses, a part of their philosophy courses, and, and the like. Um, uh, and of course, the Bible would have been a very much a part of of the arts, of letters. I mean, just think about many of the writers writing uh, in the 18th, 19th century. We're going to find that the Bible, again, is woven into their literature, what they're writing about. And again, we know that because we see evidence of that in the writings uh, that survive. And this is not only true in, in, in writings of a non-religious nature, it's also particularly true in their political discourse. Uh, there's a, a, a political scientist who, oh, about 20 years ago, did a major, excuse me, about 40 years ago, did a major survey of, of the literature of the American founding era, the political literature. And what he discovered is that the Bible was the most frequently cited book in the political literature. Um, it far exceeded any school of thought. Um, so, uh, in fact, the Bible accounted for about one-third of all the references, all the citations in the literature that he surveyed. And, and uh, you know, other writers that we might be familiar with would have come in in a very distant uh, second. Uh, probably the sec most second most cited authority would have been the French philosopher, political theorist, Baron de Montesquieu, who wrote a famous book in the mid-18th century called The Spirit of the Laws. Um, but the Bible would have far exceeded Montesquieu's writings or the writings of John Locke. Um, the most frequently cited book, and this is kind of interesting, the book of Deuteronomy is the most cited book uh, mm. of all. Um, and, and, and the American founding generation were very much drawn to Deuteronomy. And, and I think their interest in Deuteronomy is for a number of reasons. One, Deuteronomy, being the fifth book of Moses, uh, is sort of a, an encapsulation of the previous four books. So you kind of get a, a digest, if you will, of everything that's preceded in the books of Moses and the book of Deuteronomy. So it's a, it's a very convenient book for that um, for that uh, purpose. But one of the aspects of Deuteronomy that makes it so appealing, in addition to it containing a, a statement of, of some of the moral codes and moral laws, uh, especially those that we read earlier in the book of Exodus, it also tells or retells the story of a people chosen by God uh, to leave slavery in Egypt and having crossed the Red Sea, they now have to build a government from scratch. They have to start with nothing, with only Moses. We read in, in, in the book of Exodus that when the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, all the responsibilities and the burdens of governing the children of Israel fell on the shoulders of one man and one man only. And so they had to think about how are we going to be able to how are we going to create a, a system of laws and governments to govern us as a children of Israel? And, and I think that's the way many Americans thought 
of themselves in 1776. Having declared independence from Great Britain, they had to start, start from scratch. Mm -hmm. They had to build a political society, a civil society from the ground up. And so I think they thought there were there were lessons to be learned that they could read about in the book of Deuteronomy. Not only general lessons about virtue and the like, but also some of the nuts and bolts. I mean, imagine if you were starting from scratch, what kind of government would you create? Well, they, for example, thought they saw in the story of the children of Israel models for Republican form of government. And so Here's a, a starting point. We want to create representative government. Um, you might remember, for example, in the book of Exodus, chapter 18, verse 21, there's a, a laying out of what kind of political leaders do you want? You want able men who fear God, who are who are trustworthy and hate covetousness. Well, there's a laying out of the model for a what a righteous ruler looks for, looks like. Uh, they also saw in that very same text how 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 Moses begins uh, to, to sort of divide up the people into small groups, um, groups of families, and then groups of 50 and 100 and so on and so forth. Well, what does that look like? That, that's starting to look like local government, maybe state government, maybe federal government, a kind of system of federalism, if you will. And so many Americans, I think, reading and thinking about political ideas at the end of the 18th century, thought that they saw good advice, interesting insights about political society by reading the Bible, and in particular, reading from the book of Deuteronomy. Hmm. That's so interesting. I remember when I heard that for the first time that the most influential book in the Bible on our founders is the book of Deut Deuteronomy. Now, I was kind of like shocked. I didn't really expect that when I first heard that. Um, we live in a time where it seems like the narrative mostly being pushed is that the Constitution and our founding fathers were mostly influenced by the Enlightenment. I was reading a textbook just a few days ago, and I saw that it said that the Constitution was based off the Enlightenment. There was no mention of the Bible. Um, and I think, obviously, you talked about these studies and things that seem to show that that's not true. But when you hear the idea that our founding fathers in America is based on the Enlightenment, like, how do you kind of react to that? Yeah. Well, uh, look— um, the individuals in our founding period who played instrumental, influential roles, they read widely. They read very widely, and they were drawing on uh, diverse perspectives and schools of thought. Um, and and I, one of the things I say in my book, and I say it more than one time because I really want to emphasize this, and that is the American founders drew on a variety of perspectives and schools of thought. And it does include some Enlightenment thinkers. Uh, they would have been interested, for example, in the writings of a John Locke. Now, John Locke was also influenced by a biblical and a reformed theological perspective, but we might put him in a category of Enlightenment thinkers, or we might include in that same category someone like Montesquieu that I just mentioned. So they were familiar with these writers and their perspectives. You mentioned earlier some of the ancient writers um, they were very interested in what they could learn by studying the, the Roman Republic 2,000 years earlier. And so they studied 
uh, people like Cicero, uh, for example, or uh, uh, and other Republicans of that age. Um, but I think we make a mistake if we don't include in that mix the biblical tradition. And, and by biblical tradition, I mean both a Hebraic as well as a Christian uh, perspective. Uh, one of the most cited um, biblical text in the political literature of the American founding is kind of interesting. It's, it's Romans chapter 13, the first few verses. And if you know Romans 13, you know it, is, it's, it, it, it speaks of our duty to be in submission to those in authority over us. Now, this is a very difficult text for a group of colonists who are thinking about rebelling, if you will, against the king and, and parliament. And so they studied Romans 13 very carefully. Now, we could have a debate about whether they interpreted Romans 13 accurately or not, but my first point is simply to say, uh, here's an example of how one of the most profound questions that they're confronted with is, is it right to resist a civil ruler? And where do they turn? They turn to Scripture. They turn to the Bible to try to discern this very difficult question. Now, just to finish out this particular example, uh, their reading of Romans 13 goes something like this. They say, yes, it is true that Paul instructs the believer to be in submission to those in authority. And in fact, civil rulers are appointed by God. A civil ruler is like a vice regent of God here on earth. Uh, but God has appointed rulers to serve the public good. Now, the problem is, is that some people bearing the mantle of civil ruler become tyrants. And if they become a tyrant, they cease to serve the public good. And by doing so, they, in a sense, abdicate their role as a civil ruler. They depose themselves. Therefore, the believer is no longer obligated to obey that civil ruler who's become a tyrant. And so they work through a theology. Again, we could have a debate about whether this is good theology or not, but they earnestly work through this kind of biblical text to reassure themselves that, that, that they were not violating Scripture by by resisting the rule of George III and, and, and Parliament. And, and let me just add one final note on that. It's very interesting. In the Declaration of Independence, there is a line, and you can look this up, where they say in the Declaration, this tyrant George III has what? He's abdicated. Mm -hmm. He's abdicated his position, reflecting, I believe, this very theology. So, uh, you know, the, the truth is, in my perspective, my view, that the American founding generation draws on a lot of different traditions, perspectives, ideas, uh, but we, we, we do a disservice. We, we're not going to uh, adequately and accurately understand the ideas that inform the American founding if we don't look seriously at the Bible as one of those sources to which they turned and they studied. And, and as you rightly point out, a lot of the literature in the academy today 
just dismisses outright any biblical influence. And and I just think that's that's simply historically not true. It it mm. is it, it really misses uh, a great deal of of um, uh, of I, I think evidence of mm. the kinds of resources that the founding generation uh, would would draw on. But let me add to this, and and maybe this is the most important point I can make, uh, and that is. There are many founders who say that the Bible is absolutely vital, maybe even indispensable to their political experiment in Republican self-government and liberty under law. Now, why would they say the Bible is absolutely vital? Well, here's the reason. They were embarking on a very bold, a very innovative experiment in self-government self-government, key word there. And the reason why I emphasize that is because if you have an authoritarian ruler, an authoritarian ruler can impose discipline and social order by using a whip and a rod. Hmm. But a whip and a rod is clearly unacceptable for a self-governing people. And so the big challenge that the founders confronted is how do you promote social order, how do you promote stability and discipline if you no longer have that whip in the rod, Mm. that external control of an authoritarian ruler? And it's on this point that they look to religion, they look to the Bible to provide the moral instruction that would implant an internal moral compass, Mm. replacing that whip in the rod. So they, like Republicans for centuries, for millennia, believe virtue is absolutely essential to self-government. The Romans believe virtue. But what's different here is they believe that that virtue can only be nurtured by, by religion, and that religion, as they understood it, is Christianity. And mm-hmm. so they believe the Bible is absolutely vital in in fostering the kinds of virtue that would allow self-government to succeed. Mm. Now, when I was writing this book called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, I came across a number of founders, John Adams, for example, who said this. He said, the Bible is the most Republican book ever written. Now think Mm. about that. That's almost a direct quote. The Bible is the most Republican book ever written. Now, I find that statement on its face a little bit startling because, you know, the Bible is many things to the believer, right? It's a lamp into your feet. It's, uh, you know, it is, it is profitable for instruction, for reproof. It's, it's all these things. But I got to tell you, I, I don't think of the Bible. The first thing that doesn't jump into my head is, oh, here's a Republican book. Okay. Now, let's just stop here. What do we mean by Republican? Republican, of course, we mean small r Republican. We're not talking about a political party. We're mm-hmm. talking about small r Republican, which to the founders would have always meant this it, Republicanism meant government by consent of the governed, a kind of self government. And it's government as exercised through representatives of the people. Okay, so representative government as distinguished from, let's say, a form of pure democracy. Now, why would John Adams call the Bible the most Republican book ever written? Well, I think he, in fact, he tells us. 
He tells us exactly why. He says, you can't have a Republican government without virtue. Mm. And there has no better articulation of perfect virtue than what we find in the Bible. Mm. So he sees the Bible as absolutely essential to nurturing the kinds of virtue that he thinks is absolutely essential for Republican form of self-government to work. Hmm. And so he, along with other founders, uses this phrase, the Bible is a Republican uh, book. And so this is why it's so important to this project, again, project in self-government. It's about replacing external control by an authoritarian ruler's whip and rod. Now, let me just let me just add to that. You know, there's a lot of evidence, lots of examples of how the Bible begins to inform much more specific aspects and features of the forms of government that the founding generation began to create in the aftermath of independence. I just mentioned a minute ago the whole idea of republicanism. Uh, they they thought that that there were examples of republicanism. There were theories of republicanism throughout history, but they thought that one model worthy of their study was the example of the Hebrew Republic. By that, they're referring to the form of government that they that they believed was established in in among the children of Israel from the Exodus after they had crossed over the Red Sea until the coronation of Saul as king of Israel. So that period in between, they thought of that as an example of republicanism. And they read Deuteronomy. They read uh, Joshua and Judges uh, for the details on what they thought that they could learn about what republicanism looked like. Now, by the way, they're not the first people to do this. Uh, the, the, the Puritans, when they uh, 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 ruled England uh, uh, under Cromwell, did the same thing. They looked to this, this part of the Bible to, to find examples and illustrations of what republicanism looked like. So there have been other examples of this uh, in, in history. But let me give you a couple other examples. Um, I, I, when I look at the Constitution, the most striking feature of the Constitution, it's so apparent from the first three articles, is this concept of separation of powers and mm -hmm. checks and balances, right? Mm -hmm. We separate powers between the executive, legislative, and the judicial. Why is separation of powers so important to the American founders? And by the way, there's examples in our constitutional government of separation of powers within separation of powers. So the legislative branch is separated from the executive and the judicial. But notice we even separate the powers within the legislative branch between the House and the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. Why is this an obsession of the founders? Well, they had read Genesis chapter 3. Hmm. They read about this thing called the fall. They believed that mankind was a fallen creature, not to be trusted, mm. not to be trusted. And where power is given to man, it must be checked mm. by some other power from some other source. And so I would suggest to you that this 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 defining feature in design of our constitution separation of checks and separation of powers and checks and balances <clears throat> excuse me is a reflection 
of their understanding of human nature. They understand it's a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of mankind arising out of their reading of Genesis chapter three. Now there are many, many other uh, more specific examples. Uh, take for example in 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 Article One, Section Eight uh, of the Constitution, uh, Clause Five of Section Eight. Uh, it 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 grants the Congress the power to fix the standard of weights and measures. Standard of weights and measures. Um, well. Political regimes throughout history have understand why it's important that you have a standard for weights and measures. Uh, the English certainly understood this. This was written into the Magna Carta, uh, 1215, that it, there must be a standard of weights and measures. Interestingly, one of the most authoritative commentators on Magna Carta, uh, a, a, an English jurist, uh, by the name of Sir Edward Cook, who, who lived primarily at the end of the 16th century. He wrote this commentary on, on, on Magna Carta. And when he came to this passage on the, on the requirement of weights and measures, he said, this is a principle rooted in God's law. And guess what? He cited Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses uh, 13 and 14. Deuteronomy 25, 13, 4, which talks about the necessity of having standard weights and measures. Or, or here's another example. In Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1, it speaks of, of, of the crime of treason. And it says that convictions for treason must be supported by the testimony of two witnesses. You can't convict someone of treason with just one witness. You ha must have at least two. Well, where did that idea come from? Well, English judges have been telling us for centuries that this too is an idea rooted in scripture. The most common source is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse six, which again speaks of the necessity of having multiple witnesses for conviction for certain kinds of malfeasances. Now, there are other biblical texts, by the way, that make the same point, biblical texts in both the Old and the New Testament. Um, but here's another example of a very specific uh, a a constitutional principle that seems to be drawing on a biblical idea. Let me give you one last example. And again, we could go through a dozen, maybe two dozen of these mm. kinds of examples, but let me give you one more. In the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, there is a, uh, a provision that, that, um, that disallows what's called double jeopardy, double jeopardy, trying someone twice for the same events. Now, where did this idea come from? Again, we could have a debate on the theology here, but one of the great early church fathers was a man by the name of St. Jerome. Mm. And writing in the late fourth century, fourth century, many, many years ago, uh, he, in his commentary on the book of the prophet Nahum, he said in Nahum chapter one, verse nine, there is an articulation of the principle of double jeopardy. And from this, from this commentary, it's written into the laws of the church. It becomes part of Rome, uh, Roman law. It is later brought to England, becomes part of the English legal system, comes across the Atlantic with English colonists, is written into the earliest codes written in colonial America and eventually finds its way into 
the first American constitutions, including the United States Constitution of 1787. Now, I like giving this example because here's an example where the Supreme Court, in one of their major rulings on double jeopardy, has actually walked through this little history that I've just hmm. given. And they, they have, in essence, sort of said, yeah, we kind of see that this is a principle that seems to have stemmed from a, 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 a biblical text, hmm. at least how that biblical text has been interpreted uh, throughout Christendom. So... Hmm. Here are just a handful of, of examples of how we see the Bible uh, informing, influencing uh, the way in which Americans are thinking about government, and in particular, constitutional government. Mm. Now, again, I don't want to suggest that the Bible is the only source of influence, uh, not necessarily even the only source of influence on some of these ideas, but it's clearly one of the places where Americans are drawing on traditions that have their roots in in the Bible. Mm. Yeah, there's so much interesting information that you bring up here. And I think that one of the most natural questions kind of coming from everything we've talked about for these first 35 minutes is the idea of America being a Christian nation. You know, I think that we live in a time, especially among Christian circles in America, and especially among evangelicals, will say America was a Christian nation, we're falling away, or still is, or something along those lines. But with all these things considered, like, when someone says America was a Christian nation, or we are a Christian nation, like, how do you understand this from your historical knowledge? Well, when, I, when I'm asked that question, as you've just asked it here, <laughs> uh, my first response is always this, what do we mean by a Christian nation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can think of a half dozen or more different senses in which one can use a term like Christian nation. Uh, are we speaking demographically, uh, sociologically? Are we talking about some genuinely spiritual or theological sense? Uh, those are all very different uh, senses in which one can speak of Christian nation. Uh, uh, earlier in our conversation, I, I noted the demographics that in 1776, uh, more than 98% of all Americans of European descent would have identified as Christian. That's overwhelming. That's overwhelming. Um, and, and so by that demographic measure, uh, you know, I think you would say it's uh, Americans in 1776 were largely a Christian nation. But of course, that's just one sense in which one might use uh, such a term. It, it speaks nothing about the genuine spiritual commitments uh, of a people. And, and of course, I, I don't think to say uh, Americans thought of themselves as a Christian nation. And by the way, there were American founders who clearly expressed the view that their country was among the, the, the family of Christian nations. And so this was not an entirely unfamiliar term to them, uh, and, and, and one that it's a term that we find uh, some in the founding generation actually using and embracing. Um, but, you know, I sometimes hear people say, well, you can't call it a Christian nation because there must have been people who weren't Christian. Well, you know, we, we use terms like, uh, you know, the United States is a football-loving nation. Uh, that doesn't mean everybody loves football. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I know quite a few people who don't enjoy football at all. 
Um, but it, 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 it expresses something of a demographic, that there is a very high number of Americans, um, maybe it's a demographic within a demographic, who enjoy football. So again, by some demographic measure, yeah. Um, and even today, in, 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 uh, in, in 2020, there's probably a, a, a majority of Americans who identify in some cultural sense uh, as, as Christian. Um, there are other ways in which this term is used, uh, and I tend to find that polemicists on both sides of the debate, those who are saying we are a Christian nation and those that say we are not, nor have we ever been, oftentimes equivocate on the sense in which they're using, oftentimes within the same sentence, right? They'll, they'll refer to the term meaning one thing in one part of the sentence and then refer to it meaning something else in another part. Uh, and so this is why I think defining what we mean by such a term, Christian nation, is so, so important. But, you know, if one means by Christian nation that, that this was a nation created only for Christians or that this is a place only uh, open to Christians or uh, th those kinds of, of statements, I don't think it's true or accurate to say that America ever was a Christian nation, nor is it a Christian nation by any stretch uh, uh, today. So I think we have to be we have to be really careful about what we mean by by such a term and uh, and the scope of its application um, uh, because uh, it, it means so many different things. It's a it's a phrase that's become so freighted with with sort of ideological baggage that I'm not sure it's a terribly uh, helpful or, or useful term uh, in modern conversations and, and discourse. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that insightful answer. I think that moving forward to today, we live in a time that's becoming increasingly postmodern. As a nation, we're increasingly progressing away from Christianity and even in some ways progressing away from the Enlightenment, it seems, with kind of like the rise of postmodernism. So with that in mind and kind of there being less and less Christians in our government and just day-to-day -day life, uh, how do you think that this move away from Christian values is going to kind of change the way that we interpret um, the Constitution and some of the other founding documents uh, from our nation? Sure, sure. Well, um, clearly, I think that there are ideological perspectives that are a part of modern society that uh, offer interpretation of, of constitutional ideas that depart rather dramatically and significantly from uh, historic interpretations of concepts and ideas, um, and including interpretations that Christians have over the course of 200 years uh, have, have embraced. Um, you know, I, I, I almost heard you allude to this in your, in your question. Uh, take, for example, the First Amendment with its ideas of freedom of religion. Uh, we live in a time where where that 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 concept is being whittled down, is being narrowed and 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 applied in in such a re restrictive way that uh, you wonder what in fact freedom of religion means to some people in America today. Apparently, not much. Uh, so you know, there's an example where uh, I think living in a, 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 a modern culture, uh, we see some some really unsettling reinterpretations, reimaginings of constitutional uh, language um, that uh, I think should worry us. Uh, but let me broaden this just a little bit and say, you know, constitutions are certainly about words on a piece of paper. 
They don't have to be. Uh, there are constitutional traditions uh, that, that don't rely on written texts. It's sometimes said that the British Constitution is an unwritten constitution. Um, it includes some written texts like Magna Carta or the English Bill of Rights from 1689 or the Petition of Rights from what 1628, 1629. So it includes some written documents, but it's not exclusively a written document. Um, but even when you have a written constitution, there's always a culture that attaches to those written words. And there's oftentimes written uh, unwritten uh, provisions uh, of an institutional nature that we must be sensitive to. Uh, for example, I, I, I am inclined to think that most of the founders thought that absolutely essential for their constitutional government to work, there were a couple of non-governmental institutions that must be present, must be protected, and, and must be a part of that regime. For example, a system of education. Um, why is education so important to Republican self-government? Well, people have to be sufficiently well-informed that they can make well-informed decisions about how to govern themselves, right? So the Constitution doesn't say much, if anything, about education as a formal institution, right? But yet it's a very important part of our constitutional form of government. I would say the same thing about a free and independent press. Uh, I, it's hard for people to govern themselves without a free, fair, independent press. Hmm. Now, when our system of education is, is corrupted, when our press is corrupted, it threatens, I think, the overall constitutional regime that the founders created. Mm. But perhaps the best example here is the founders thought that religion and morality were absolutely essential to the Republican form of constitutional government they created. This is what we were speaking about earlier when we talked mm. about um, the, the, the use of the Bible in nurturing civic virtues. Um, and again, if we live in a culture where we're told you can't bring your faith-based ideas into the marketplace of ideas, you can't allow your, your public views to be informed by your religious faith, then I think that begins to undermine the larger constitutional regime created by the founding generation. Hmm. Now, just to give you an idea of how, how strongly the founders thought about this, let me take you back to probably the most famous private, I'm not sure if I'd call it a private paper, but maybe speech in American history. And I use this word guardedly because it wasn't a literal speech that someone gave in public orally. It was a written speech. And I'm referring here to George Washington's farewell address to the nation uh, in September of 1796. Mm -hmm. You may recall this was his this was his parting advice to the American people before he left the presidency after serving two terms and after declining to serve for a third term. And so he gives this farewell address. It, again, wasn't given in person. It was published in a 
Philadelphia newspaper. And almost immediately, the, the, the money quote that was extracted from this address says this, and this is George Washington, September 1790s, he says, 1796, he says, of all the habits and dispositions which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Hmm. That's a quote. Now, notice what he's saying there. He's saying religion and morality are indispensable. They're the indispensable pillars of this regime of Republican self-government that we've created. Now, lest you think he wasn't entirely serious about that line, notice what he says in the very next line. The very next sentence says this. He says, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these firmest props of human happiness, end quote. Now, what's he saying there? He says, I just told you religion and morality are indispensable supports, but if you're trying to undermine that religion and morality, if you're trying to dismiss a role for that religion and morality, then you can't call yourself a patriot, hmm. right? That's really strong language. Mm -hmm. But it tells us how strongly he thought this principle was, how important religion and morality was to their system of government that they had created. And by the way, I don't know of a founder who would have contradicted that point. Hmm. This was what we might call a commonplace in the political thought of the American founding generation. Founder after founder said essentially the same thing. So again, religion and morality are indispensable to this constitutional system. But if you, if you reject it, if you reject a role for religion and morality, as we sometimes hear people say today, then that's pretty serious business and it raises questions about the stability of the system we're left with. Mm, yeah, it's so insightful. We have w one more question here. Um, and it's probably one of the more common objections you'll hear to this whole everything, this case you're putting up here. We're talking about this idea of the Christian heritage of the founding fathers. And that's the, they may point to some of the immoral things that they did or they were a part of that they sponsored. You know, it's tricky because we're dealing with so many people here, as you were talking about very much earlier. But they'll say that uh, the founding fathers, maybe they owned slaves or look at what they did to the Native Americans, things like that, that we would were appalled by today. Um, so how do you look at that? Like, how do we balance um, the Christian heritage and with understanding maybe some of the questionable things that the founding fathers did? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. It's not an easy question. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think we have to be very candid uh, in saying that the Constitution is not a perfect document. Uh, and many founders did, in fact, acknowledge that. Uh, many founders said, you know, uh, this isn't perfect, but, you know, it's the best that we can come up with. And many, many pointed to very specific problems with the Constitution, uh, flaws with the Constitution, um, including including the, the issue of slavery. Um, and, and there were many founders who over and over again expressed fear for the nation because they saw signs of sin and licentiousness in the culture around them and even in the kinds of institutions that were, going, that were beginning to emerge in the new nation. And again, slavery was often mentioned as evidence of 
of, of, of the kind of behavior that merited divine punishment, mm. right? Even slaveholding founders express this view. You might recall a very famous line uh, from Thomas Jefferson written in the, his notes on, on the state of Virginia, where he says, I tremble for my country when I think that there's a just God and, and, and I think about the sin of slavery, right? And of course, Jefferson was a slaveholder himself. Or here's another example. Uh, George Mason, again, uh, a very large slaveholding uh, uh, man, um, but in a famous speech in the Constitutional Convention, uh, a speech he gives in August of 1787, he, he really, he, he has some very interesting things to say about slavery. Uh, he, he speaks of slavery as being cor corrosive mm. uh, uh, to, to the morals and, and, and to the culture uh, of a people. And then he says this, it's a kind of a, an interesting sort of theological point here. And again, we could debate on whether he's accurate or not, but he says this, he says, he says, when I think of sin, when I think of sin and I see sin in the individual, that individual might be punished by God in this world or the next world. Hmm. But he says, nations will not exist in the next world. Hmm. Therefore, the sin of nation, nations, including the sin of slavery, has to be punished in this world. Hmm. So he was fearful that this sin of slavery would provoke God's punishment in the here and now because the nation won't exist in the next world. Uh, and again, this is, this is a statement uh, made by a man who himself owns slaves. Uh, and so, uh, and, and we, we haven't begun to talk about the founders who who were very adamant in their opposition to slavery without, we might say, the hypocrisy of owning slaves themselves. And there, there, were, there were many. Uh, clearly, uh, people like uh, John Adams uh, found slavery enormously, enormously distasteful um, and evil. Um, but let me say this, and, and uh, this I think is a good place to wrap up this conversation. At the same time, that we observe some real problems in our constitutional system, I think we also have to note, again, at the same time, we have to note the broad principles that inspired the American founding, that our, that our principles articulated in our founding documents. Consider, for example, that famous line from the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be mm. self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm. Now, I mention that because in the midst of this founding of a new nation, we see the articulation of these powerful and profound statements of, of principle. And these statements of principles sparked a profound conversation in this country, uh, conversations that, that perhaps for the first time in human history led to the founding of, of an anti-slavery movement, an abolitionist movement, and eventually the emancipation of American slaves, an emancipation, of course, that, that, that came at the cost of a very bloody civil war. Um, but yes, yeah, so we acknowledge 
the flaws of this constitutional system. But I think we also have to recognize that there were some profound truths that are also articulated in our very organic law that that leads to to some tremendous uh, achievements um, when we look at the broad sweep of, of human history. Uh, movements uh, uh, about ending slavery, about human liberty, more broadly speaking. Hmm. Yeah, there's so much great information that you've packed into this hour. The time has flown by. Uh, so much here. Really appreciate your time, Dr. Driesbach. I'd encourage everyone. I hope I've been pronouncing your last name right this whole time. Um, close enough. Close enough. <laughs> I'll take it. As someone else whose last name is never pronounced correctly, um, I understand your struggle. Uh, thanks for... Thank you so much for your time. There's so much interesting stuff here. I'd encourage everyone to check out his book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers and his other books. So much good stuff. This is it here in Apologetics, guys. If you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to subscribe, leave a rating, a like, wherever you're listening to us. Thank you. you support us on Patreon. Dr. Driesbach, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. Good speaking with you. For sure. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. God bless.